Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, let's get to it. Romans chapter 4 is where we left off two weeks ago. And we'll preach last week. If you missed it, it's online, I'm sure. I was in New York City and had a wonderful time. And actually, next week, I think I'm going to be out of town as well. Jennifer and I will have the week, this upcoming week, with um, almost no children, our two younger ones. She's taking to camp today. Jacob is going to Uganda. And my oldest, Joseph, Lord willing, will be going to China later this summer, and so Jennifer and I may take this next weekend. And so Reuben Moyana will be preaching from Colossians chapter 1 next week. Reuben read our call to worship. He's our newest elder, and really looking forward to that. Romans chapter 4 is where we left off a couple weeks ago in our journey through Romans. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15 this morning, and I think verse 13 warrants us to pause and to stare at this sentence that I think is embedded with such implications in the Christian life that I hope it will propel us into uh, leaning forward into all that God has for us this morning. Imagine with me for a moment two people that are terribly hungry. And imagine that we pick them up, they're starving, they have been without proper nutrition for most of their life, and we put them in the middle of the forest with a few loaves of bread to last a week and a water supply. And we told one man, we said, you're hungry, I know, but if you can get through this week, just this week, with these loaves of bread and enough water to get you through the week, at the end of this week, For the rest of your life, you will never want for anything, and there will be a feast that you can never get to the bottom of, that you can never, never fully exhaust. It will be yours forever. And then we said to the other guy, who's on the other side of the forest, look, I know life has been hard. Here's a few loaves of bread and some water. At the end of this week, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but man, just hang in there for this week and maybe it'll work out for you and maybe it won't. Now, which of those two do you think is going to endure that week with more gusto? Well, clearly the first, right? I think our text this morning speaks to this reality that God intends for his people to live life on this earth Not as if this earth is all that there is, but to look forward, to lean into, and to long for the great reward that he has for his people. So let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, and then we're going to work through the text. Paul writes this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, 
there is no transgression. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this passage. Lord, thank you for your word that we can come and open it freely. We think of Christians in parts of the world that cannot and do not have these freedoms that we have. Pray for your grace and strength to them. I pray that you'd remove every distraction from us seeing this beautiful truth this morning. I pray that believers in this room's hearts would be nourished and encouraged and exhorted. And I pray for unbelievers in this room that you, by your sovereign grace, would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe the truth of the gospel. And as we come around the Lord's table on this first Sunday of June and receive this communion meal together to remember what Christ has done for his people, may our affections be stirred and may we be formed into the image of Christ more as a result of our time together worshiping you and staring at your word. Now I pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do, to breathe life and joy and clarity into our minds and our hearts. I pray it all for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think the point of this text, I think the point of this passage, this Romans chapter 4 that we've been in for a few weeks, is the point of how God makes people right with himself. It's this doctrine, this very important doctrine in the history of the church called justification by faith. And it's part of a a bigger group of truths that we are made right, justified, by faith alone, not by our works, in Christ alone, by grace alone. So in other words, God has made a people for himself, not because they were good, but because they were dead in their sins, and God sent his son Jesus to live the life that they could not live, to bear the punishment that should have been theirs. And because he's holy and righteous and innocent and blameless, he rises again over sin, death in the grave, and now calls all people that will trust in him to put their hope not in their family heritage, their ethnicity, their their ability to even obey God in and of themselves, but in what God has done through his son Jesus to live the life for us and to defeat death and sin in the grave for us. And so that's the great, in fact, that's what Romans 1 through 4 has been up to this point. And it's been this, this, this very clear message that all people are guilty, whether Jews or Gentiles, religious or non-religious, all people are guilty and stand equally needy before God. But God has made a way by putting forward his son, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, to rise in victory over our enemy that we could not defeat, so that for all those that would put their faith in him, they would be made right with God. And that faith that they even exercise in him is a gift from God. It's not a work that they do. And so this stunning, beautiful gospel truth of the early chapters of Romans is that God makes people right through the gift of faith that he gives them so that they can now exercise that faith in Jesus who bore the punishment for their sin, lived the life that they could not live, and defeated the enemy that they could not defeat. And Paul, writing to his Jewish audience in the church at Rome, takes the example of Abraham, 
Father Abraham of the Jewish nation, who the Jewish people in the Old Testament would have said if anybody was righteous, if anybody was right in and of themselves to stand before God because of their own works, it would have been Abraham. And Paul is making the point in Romans chapter 4 that even Abraham was just as guilty as we are, and even Abraham was not made right by his own works or his own righteousness, but by the sovereign gift of God, by faith in God's word, which we know ultimately in the New Testament becomes Jesus. But here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 13, let's look at it again. Paul embeds this promise, this implication of this doctrine that we've been staring at for the last few weeks about how we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And he says in verse 13, let me read it again, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. So the second half of the sentence there is saying what we've been saying for the last, really, weeks, that Abraham, like any other person that is one of God's people, is made right by faith, not by his own righteousness or his own works. And then at the beginning of verse 13, Paul opens up this implication of what that justification brings us into, and it says that Abraham was promised something and his offspring was promised something, that they would be the heirs of the world. So three questions as we work through this text, and then we're going to look at some implications and apply it to our lives. Three questions. One, from verse 13, what is this promise to Abraham? What exactly is, is promised to him? Well, Paul, in our text, kind of skips ahead. And if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit and you're writing under the inspiration of God himself, you, you can do that. Paul skips ahead and gives us the answer. He, he interprets the whole Old Testament, really the promises to Abraham for us, by saying at the second half of that sentence that, that what, is, what is promised to Abraham? That he, along with his offspring, would be the heir of the world. But let's, let's take some time to go back to look at the seed form of that promise. Like, Maybe when you were um, in math class uh, and you had to go up to the board and to solve a problem, you know, you can't just write the answer because maybe you got the answer from your buddy who really knew what he was doing and you just went up there and wrote the answer. You have to, you ever have a teacher say, you got to show me the work, right? So let's, let's, let's look at what the Old Testament says so we can see the work that leads up to Paul's answer. So what does the Old Testament say? What is the beginning of the answer in seed form of this question? What is promised to Abraham? All the way back to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read about four passages very quickly out of Genesis, just kind of rapid fire. And I want, to, I want you to see what is promised to Abraham in seed form in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 12 verse 1. What's happened here is God has called this man Abram, was wandering around in the desert with his family, not seeking God. God came to him, sovereignly chose him. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Skipping down to verse 7 of chapter 12, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there we see that God promises Abraham land. He promises him offspring, a heritage. And he promises to bless him so that through Abraham and his progeny, his his offspring, God would bless all the nations of the earth. Okay, then to chapter 13, he promises Abraham again this almost the very same thing. In Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So he emphasizes there in Genesis 13 this this land that he's going to give Abraham as an inheritance. Again, just a few chapters over in Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God is motivating Abram by telling him about this reward that he will receive. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give to me? For I continue childless. Because he's remembering that God said that you're, you're, you're going to have many offspring. And here he is in his old age. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, You've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, not my biological son. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And verse 6, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible We've been looking at this verse in, in context of Romans, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there we see the first sort of establishment of this principle that God imputed, transferred, gave Abraham his righteousness, not because Abraham had did anything, but simply because Abraham believed. And why did Abraham believe? Not because it was a work that he was bringing to the table, but because God first came to him and gave him the gift of faith that he required of Abraham. And Abraham believes, and it's credited to him as righteousness. In verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So he's promising Abraham offspring, blessing, and land. Just one more chapter, chapter 17, um, in, starting in verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. Again, he's speaking to Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For By the way, that's our youngest son's name, Abraham, which is a wonderful biblical name. I wanted to name him Salvatore, which is a wonderful Italian name. Can you imagine Salvatore Evangelista, right? But Jennifer vetoed that, and so we went with choice number two, which was Abraham. I love that name. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant before me. And you and your offspring after 
you throughout their generations from an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's this emphasis on this land, this promised land, this Canaan land that God has promised to Abraham in seed form in the Old Testament. And so Abraham is, is, is promised all of this, but let's not forget why he's promised all of this. At the beginning that we read the first verse in Genesis 12, it's so that he would be a blessing, so that his, his nation that would come from him, his offspring would be a blessing to all the other nations. And so the purpose, the intention of God's blessing to Abraham is not that it would dead end on Abraham for Abraham's sake, but Abraham is meant to be a conduit, an image bearer, a display of what God wants to do in the earth. And God says to do this, I'm going to give you land and offspring and blessing. And that's what Abraham has promised in, Genesis chap- in the chapters in Genesis. The question then that we need to think about, back from, to our verse in Romans 4, verse 13, it says the f- promise is to Abraham and his offspring. So who is Abraham's offspring? Or we might say more grammatically correctly, who are Abraham's offspring? But we're going we're gonna to back up on that and see where really who is Abraham's offspring is the better answer or the better question to ask there. So in one sense, Abraham's offspring in the Old Testament is his physical offspring. So if we took the time, in fact, a couple years ago, we did go through the whole book of Genesis and we looked at how Abraham uh, actually had a child with his wife who was 90, and I think he was 99 at the time, and miraculously God, even though they tried to disobey God and come up with their own plan and he tried to have a child, he did have a child with a slave woman, one of his, one of his wife's servants, but even then God was merciful to him and finally in his old age, God has a son, Isaac, with his wife Sarah. And so from Isaac, from his physical offspring, comes this nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So in one sense, Abraham's offspring in the Old Testament is the ethnic nation of Israel. And so we can say kind of in seed form, in a sort of shadow form, the promises to Abraham in the Old Testament and the ones that will inherit his promises is the offspring, the physical offspring that will come from him so long, and this is so important, So long as they are obedient to God, God always attached the fulfillment of his promises to the faithfulness of his people. In other words, it's not just, hey, I'm going to bless you and you can do whatever you want. That's not the promise of God. No, God said, I will bless you and you will obey me. So that through your life, through the way you live and pursue me in holiness, you become an example to an onlooking world of what it means to be the people of God. So that through you and your corporate life together, you can be an image-bearing display of the satisfaction of what it means to be one of God's children. That's the whole missionary 
purpose of God. That's the purpose of God's people in the Old Testament. And by the way, that's the purpose of God's people in the New Testament. Not that we would just be individual Christians that get a little juice to live a better Tuesday or a Thursday, but that so together we would be a kind of city set on a hill that a world looks at and sees, ah, that's what it means to be God's people. The church should always be an evangelistic aroma, a missionary agency to an onlooking world. And Paul is telling Abraham here that your progeny, your offspring, your physical descendants will inherit this promise so long as they obey me. Problem though, none really of Abraham's descendants in any way that merits anything from God can obey him. That's the story of the Old Testament. That God's people, the ethnic Jews, are consistently unfaithful. And God gives them a law through Moses generations later. And he says, this law I'm going to give you so that it forms you as a nation so that you will have a kind of mirror, a kind of display of what it means to follow me. Not that this law would ever save you, but this law would be a kind of tutor, a kind of schoolmaster that brings you to me so that you would realize you cannot live out my commands, my holiness on your own. You must depend on me and as you strive to live in this way to an onlooking world you become the display that I intended for you to be when I made you out of nothing but God's people in the Old Testament consistently fail so the dilemma is at the end of the Old Testament who will inherit the promise to Abraham. How will this happen? Because Abraham's offspring has failed. Just like all of us have failed. Really, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is a kind of object lesson, a kind of picture of the Christian life. We all too have failed. So then, who is Abraham's offspring? Well, the New Testament, specifically Paul's letter to Galatians, gives us the answer. It interprets for us what's going on in the Old Testament in God's promise to Israel and their failure and what will be the hope. If they won't inherit the promises of the land and the blessing and the covenant, then who will? And Paul answers this for us in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So, so do you see what's going on here? Christ because he is the only true obedient man. He is the only true obedient Jew. He is the only one who truly lives a holy life towards God. Fully God, but yet fully man, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, becomes the only one who can rightly receive the blessing and the promise of God. Do you see that? Jesus is the offspring. He is, and that's not to say that Jesus is temporal, right? Because we know that Jesus has existed in eternity past. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus, as Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time became a man. So Jesus, God 
the Son in the flesh, becomes a man, lives out where we have failed, lives out the life that God intends for his people perfectly, and because of his incarnation, because of his humanity, because of his human obedience, receives the promises and becomes the only one true faithful man of God, or really person of God, Jew. And so all of the promises are not for people who are ethnically connected to God or people that go to church or people that are trying hard because all of us fail. The only person that is worthy to receive God's blessing is God the Son in the flesh who becomes the perfect man for us. And now, listen to what Paul says. This is where it just gets so good. At the end of Galatians 3, this is what Paul says about those who have faith in that one true offspring, Jesus. Look at verse 29 of Galatians chapter 3. And if you are Christ, in other words, if you are trusting in Jesus, if by faith, You're not trusting in your own works to make you right with God, but you're believing that Jesus lived and died and rose again for your sins to make you right with God, to justify you. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. No, no, that's way, way better than we realize. Do you see what's happening there? This means that pleasing God, satisfying God, inheriting God's blessing is nothing that we can do. But Jesus has done it for us. And if we have faith in Jesus, we are included. We receive. We are in him. He's in us. And we become part of the deal by faith in Jesus, by faith in his obedience, not our obedience. Do you see that? Friends, herein lies the gospel itself. That Jesus lived the life that we could not live, took the punishment that we could not bear, defeated the enemy that we could not slay, and rises again in victory, has fulfilled all of the promises that God gave to Abraham, has fulfilled all of the requirements of the law on our behalf. And now because he's alive, because he's sovereign, he sovereignly gives faith to those that God has given him. He wakes them up from their dead stupor into sin, gives them life so that they can have faith in him. And because of the faith that he gives us as a gift that is exercised, now we receive the inheritance that is his. Friends, that is stupendously amazing. And that's what's going on. That's, so do you see, do you see Let's dig a little deeper here. That's what Paul is saying even in our main text. He's he's saying in verses 13 and 15 of Romans 4, he's saying that the inheritance of the law, all of those that are trying to gain our right standing with God, whether it's a Jew in the Old Testament or whether it's a religious person nowadays, if, if, if we could gain our right standing with God by obedience to the law, then this whole system, this whole design of God that his people should be saved by faith is null and the promise is void. So if anybody gets into heaven because they're basically good, it cancels out the whole design of the purpose of God in Christ. 
Nobody makes it to heaven to eternity because they're basically good. But that is the way most of people in this earth think that they will meet God someday, that I'm basically better than the knucklehead down the street. And Paul is saying that if that's the case, the whole system is null and void because the law rightly judges. It brings wrath. It judges transgression. And there's only one who's free of that, and it's Jesus. And so those that are in him receive the blessing of God. I think the implications are enormous. I mean, first, just one short little, one little pause here is that Paul is, has completely redefined for us. Maybe that's not a good word. Paul has interpreted for us what the Bible means by what it means to be Jewish. To be a true Jew is to be somebody who has faith in the only one true obedient Jew, which is Jesus. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, we, we just read that. Let's, let's go back to our, our main uh, passage, Romans 4, but just go two chapters over. Romans 2, the last two verses of Romans 2, this is what Paul says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Because remember, circumcision was this physical act of cutting away the foreskin of, 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 of the male that would mark, that would be a kind of physical marker to an onlooking world of who the ethnic Jews were. But Paul is, he's interpreting for us, he's spiritualizing here what it means to be a Jew or a person of God. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So by that word Jew, Paul is not, he's, he's spiritualizing that meaning. Do you see that? He's saying that this is what it means to be a true person of God. Not that you come from some ethnicity or that you're circumcised or that you obey some kosher diet, but that you have faith in the one true Jew, which has the only one who has obeyed God perfectly for you. So, so do you realize that, Christian? You are a true you're a tr the, the New Testament said you're a true Jew. You're a true person of God, not because of anything you do or have done, but because of Jesus. Now, third question, what does he inherit? What does Jesus inherit? Well, remember, Abraham was promised blessing and offspring and land, specifically the promised land, Canaan. But Paul, in our text in Romans 4, broadens that. He expands that. What does he say that Abraham is gonna, and his offspring are going to inherit? A, a patch of dirt in the Middle East? No, he says that they would be the heir of the world. So how does the New Testament apply the shadow, the seed form of the promise in the Old Testament more specifically, how does the Holy Spirit intend for us to understand what is promised to Jesus and his co-heirs, those that are trusting in him? Let's see how the New Testament 
interprets the promise to Abraham's offspring. Let's see what the New Testament has to say about this inheritance, which in the Old Testament is in seed form. It's a shadow of this land. It's a kind of temporary picture of this greater eternal reality that we see marked out for us in the New Testament. So just a few quick verses. I'll read them. They'll come up on the screen. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir, not just of this physical land that was promised to Abraham, but the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. So that means that everything that Jesus inherits, because of our faith in him. (laughs) Can can you believe this? But, But everything that Jesus gets... As the heir of all things, as co-heirs with Jesus, we receive. (laughs) Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit not a little patch of dirt in Palestine, but the earth. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23, and the context of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 3 is the church at Corinth is fighting with one another because they were selfish and territorial, and they were being stingy and small-minded. And Paul is exhorting them to to get beyond their small-mindedness because they are in Christ. So he says in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 3, so let no one boast in men. Why? Why? Because all things are yours. All things. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Do you see that, friends? Don't stress over petty trinkets. Because if you are a joint heir with Christ, everything is yours. Back to Abraham, and look at how the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, spiritualizes and interprets for us the promise of physical land to Abraham. This is what he says in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed, remember we just read about that in Genesis, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, this physical land. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, which God gave to him, he went to live in the land of promise, this physical land, Canaan, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 gives us a clue that what Abraham was ultimately looking for was ultimately not just this land, but something bigger. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
Skipping ahead to verse 13, speaking of all the old patriarchs of the faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Again, this eternal trajectory, skipping to verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that city, that inheritance, is far bigger than the shadow seed form of this physical land that God gave Abraham. That was a kind of picture, a temporary picture, pointing to the eternal reality of the inheritance of all things that would be ours in Christ for those who have faith in him. Friends, this is, let me just pause here. This is a really important theological point. It helps us see how the whole Bible fits together. It helps us to understand who the people of God are. The promise of the land in the Old Testament is spiritualized in its application in the New Testament. The Old Testament physical land of Canaan fades into the background in the New Testament and becomes the new heavens and the new earth, which is where the Bible, Bible ends. In fact, the Bible closes out with this wonderful picture of what this, this inheritance, this all things, this earth looks like. In Revelation 21, just paraphrasing here the first few verses, it says that the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the earth, with Jerusalem, the holy city, will come down to this renewed earth where God has made all things new, like a bride being adorned for her husband. And behold, a voice will shout that God will dwell with his people. They will be his, he will be theirs, and he will wipe away every tear death shall be no more and God will be with his people forever and ever friends that's the promise the inheritance that God gives his people so just a little picture for us to help apply this to our lives I mean every now and again I'll come across Christians who I think are well-intended but they'll say things like, they'll, they'll think that it's maybe more spiritual or more biblical for Christians to be kind of messianic Jewish in their application of their faith. So we should like observe the Old Testament feasts. Or we should try and observe. They, they might say, oh, we're not saved by obeying the law. But if we do obey the law as it's prescribed in the Old Testament... And that house somehow makes us like more holy. And I would say that that's a real misunderstanding of what the purpose of the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is like a shadow that's pointing to the substance, the reality that is Christ. Now, the Old Testament still has its purpose in our lives. It's, it gives us a picture of the holiness of God. It, it teaches us much about how we are to live. But to try and go back and live according to Old Testament law would be like going up and hugging your spouse. Your spouse is right here. Their shadow's right there. And you're just, like you're, you're, hugging, you're hugging the shadow. The shadow is pointing to the reality. The substance is Christ. And the New Testament gives us this wonderful invitation not to hug the shadow, but to hug the substance, which is Christ. One other little application here. 
is that Christians become very passionate about supporting ethnic Israel as if ethnic Israel is going to inherit all of these promises of God in the Old Testament. Well, friends, should we support and befriend Jews? Yes, but not because they're going to be saved because they're Jews, but because we are pleading for them to come to Christ because the only way they will inherit anything is not by being Jew, but trusting in the one true Jew who is Christ. So, as a summary for what I think this text is saying, is I think God intends for us to be motivated. I think we're all like starving people that have a week on this earth, which for some of us is 80 or 90 years. And I think the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone, God intends to open us up into this reality that when that happens, we become joint heirs with Christ. We become Abraham's true true children in a spiritual sense. And therefore, we can look forward as we walk through this broken, hungry world to the inheritance that will surely be ours in Christ. In fact, that's how Jesus endured his earthly life. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says about Jesus, verse 2, that we should look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus was motivated by the joy of the inheritance that he would receive through his obedience to God, the purchase of all those that God has given him in eternity past. So if Jesus is motivated by the joy of receiving his reward, I think we're in good standing if we imitate Jesus, right? It's like in Sunday school, if you don't know the answer, Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus. Quickly, three, three implications of being an heir with Christ. Three implications of being an heir with Christ, and then we're going to come to the table together. One is that we can endure trials in this life, right? We can stand a week in the forest with minimal food because we know that we are going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know that we will... Be with him forever. Just a few passages, very quickly. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. These 80 or 90 years, or whatever it is, does not compare, no matter how tough it is, to the inheritance that will be the people of God's in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen these 80 or 90 years, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable. In other words, it's not ultimately here to an inheritance. That's why that book, Your Best Life Now, by that false preacher out in Dallas or Houston or wherever he is, is a lie. This is not your best life now. If this was your best life now, what hope would there be? We are going to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, believer, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you should rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, I get it, Peter's saying, you're in the woods, you're hungry, but hold on, there's something imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. If we see this truth, we can better endure the trials of life. And how can we do this on our own? Because man, as sure as I'm standing here, as sure as I believe I'm standing here talking to you, I believe this truth. But you know what? Monday morning's coming and I am so prone to forget this. He said, we need each other. We need to be known in a local church. We need to have the church know who we are. We need to know the people. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. We need to care about one another. We need to be like a gospel echo chamber that speaks and reminds one another of this truth because we all suffer from the same dreaded disease of gospel amnesia. We forget. This world has concussed us so many times that we can't hold this dear truth for more than a couple days before we need to be reminded of it. Am I the only just pathetic Christian here or are some of you in the same boat? Okay, thank you. 30 of us. (laughs) Second implication of this truth of being an heir with Christ is that, friends, we can let go of the things of this world. If we are promised all that is Christ, what is the trinkets of this life? What are they in comparison? Like you army guys know this. It's like the Christian should, I think, when we see this truth, it, it, it empowers them to walk through the company area, through the motor pool, through the arms room, like that NCO that's been put in 20 years, and he's ETS, and he's retiring next week. And he's just like, man, whatever. What? <laughs> yeah, no, what can this world do to me? Because I'm out of this mug. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? But we need each other to remind ourselves that the trinkets of this world are not worth to being held on to, to drag us down, to worry us, to cause us to be anxious and to fret because we are marching together towards the feast. So why are we going to fight over this little loaf of bread that we've been given for this temporary week when what is promised us is the banquet that awaits us? And thirdly, I think this truth helps us because it enables us to see that we can give ourselves away We can give ourselves away because we lack nothing in Christ. And oh, how I need this truth more in my life. The the truth of the reward of the inheritance of being with Christ and all that is his is mine allows us to give ourselves away because if we have Christ, we need nothing. 
And we are free now to heap praise on other people because if we have everything in Christ, we are not on competition with other people. We are free to see our possessions and our money and our time and our talents and our treasures as mere means by which we can make much of God and use them and give them away and leverage them to display his grace as he has done with us generously so that we can give our stuff away rather than compiling it like hoarders that eventually die under a pile of their rusted trinkets. We can give ourselves away. We are free to give ourselves away because we believe the good news of the promises of God and the gospel as the psalmist says that the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want Psalm 84 verse 11 for the Lord God is a son and shield the Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly and who are those that walk uprightly those who are trusting in Jesus whose righteousness has been given to them so that means, friends, let's apply that. That means if God does not withhold anything good, that means that whatever comes our way is intended in some way to be worked together in God's sovereign plan for our good and his glory. So that means if I don't make it through this whole week of 80 or 90 years and God cuts my life short of some tragedy, it is a good thing that God intended for me for the ultimate display of his glory. And when I suffer that thing, it only serves as a... a, a a servant of God to usher me into his presence where I inherit everything forever, right? If that is true, then this should affect the way we live our lives on mission. William Carey, the great missionary to India, said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Give your life away because it's not yours. It's his and he has given you all things. Jim Elliott, who was martyred on a beach in Ecuador back in the 1950s with his friends as they were trying to take the gospel to this hostile tribe, wrote before he was killed, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Back to the illustration of the hungry man. I mean, if we know we are marching towards a never-ending feast to be with Christ forever, how can we be people that hoard our loaves of bread during this sojourn here on earth? How does this apply to us? Maybe you are a struggling exhausted, young, single mother. How does this truth apply to you? The struggle that you are going through now matters. God has purposes in whatever you are enduring, no matter how confusing or confounding. He has promised you, if you are in Christ, to work all things together for your good. Now, His ways are often invisible to us because our vision is limited. And we see through a mirror or a glass dimly. But you can hold on to this truth and it can stir to you in your exhaustion. How does this apply to you, young man, dealing with 
some temptation that you just cannot seem to shake that is tearing away at your very life and future? How does this apply to you? C.S. Lewis, the great English writer and thinker, said in the mid-1900s that our desires are not too strong. They're, they're actually too weak. We are far too easily pleased. And we're like children who've been offered a vacation by the sea, but we prefer to play in the dumpster in the slums. How does this apply? We need, if we're trapped in some cycle of temptation and sin, to look up from our phone, to look up from our computer screen, and to take in the wonder of the beauty of the gospel, to take in the wonder of all the promises that God has given us, and that we, that our, that our desires would actually increase so that we would only be satisfied with what God has promised us. Maybe you are a person in a spiritual rut how does this apply to you? Oh, dear friend, consider, call to mind all that is yours in Christ. Consider what you deserve in your natural state, which the law promises for those who are not in Christ, that they would be, they would feel the wrath of God. Consider the sheer grace of God in your life. Consider that God has promised you all of this so that you in the mundane, ordinary aspects of your life would be put on display to an onlooking world that is trapped in a cycle of dissatisfaction. And let that rouse you from your spiritual rut. Maybe you are a person anxious about the future like I often am. How does this apply to you? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you joint heir with Christ? Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't think that's a prosperity gospel message. I don't think that Jesus is saying, if you will just have faith, you will have riches here in this life. I think he's pointing us, like the rest of the Bible is pointing us, that God has promised you an inheritance that is undefiled. And so look at every situation that is horizontal and put it in front of this great truth and let it put steel in our spines. Let it cause us to link arms in gracious humility with one another and march towards that heavenly goal. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8 says, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Let's pray. Father, take this truth and stamp it on our hearts. Brand it on us. Because the storms will come this week and we will be tempted to forget. Knit us together in community so that we become an echo chamber of the reality of the truths of the gospel so that we can speak it to one another. All for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. And Lord, any person in this room this morning who has not come in trusting in Jesus, I pray that by your sovereign grace, you would wake them out of their stupor. Show them that they came in dead and their only hope is Christ. And that you, in fact, are giving them the very thing that you require of them. It's faith. It's the ability to believe. The ability to turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope in what Jesus has done. When you give it, it doesn't come in the form of full, complete understanding. It just comes in the form of simple faith that says, I have a lot of unanswered questions, but I believe in Jesus. Friend, do that right now. If you do not know Jesus, do that right now. I plead with you. And you, if you have more questions, and I'd love to speak to you after service about it. But Lord, would you, would you give that faith right now? In Jesus' name, amen. As we all stand together, ushers, if you would come, be prepared to serve us this morning as we come to the table. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table where we are remembering that Jesus died and rose again for us, that his body, which is what this bread symbolizes, was broken for us, and that his blood, which is what the cup symbolizes, was spilled for us. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table. If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to do this because we don't want you to profess something by taking this meal that you don't yet believe. If you want to learn more about what it means to be a Christian, please come and speak to anybody that you know to be a Christian, myself, any of the other pastors, just any believer. And we'd love to sit down and talk with you more. But those of you that are believers, when you are ready, let's come to the table. Hold on to the elements and Reynolds will lead us to receive them together. Let's come. Mm-hmm.